the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter. When you found your place, would you bow your heads with me as we pray? We'll ask God's blessing upon our study. Our Father, we are grateful that you speak to us in your word and that you show us the Savior in this revelation. And we thank you for this, this book, the Gospel of John, which gives us a portrait of our Savior with such clarity as to his, his deity, his care for his sheep, his sovereignty and his salvation that he offers. And so we pray today as we look at this 10th chapter that you would open our eyes to behold in your word wonderful things about Christ, that we may respond to him with loving adoration and affection and thankfulness for all that you have provided for us in our Good Shepherd. And now in the words of the song that we just heard to our King, the eternal, immortal, be glory forever and ever, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are going to be looking at the 10th chapter of John's Gospel today and doing what we do every time we get to sort of a larger chunk that we haven't uh, approached yet, and that is giving an introduction to this 10th chapter. Introductions to large passages of Scripture give us the opportunity to do a couple of things. First, it gives us an opportunity to sort of step back a little bit from what we've been studying more slowly and more detailed and catch a glimpse of a larger context or a larger portion of Scripture. There is blessing to be gleaned from taking large portions of Scripture in one sitting in that we get the the whole context and the whole flow and we can see themes and and we can see large passages of Scripture uh, unfold and develop in front of us. The second benefit is that we, we are always preserved that way of from from um, misapplying or misinterpreting Scripture. Because sometimes we get involved in the, the minutia of a study. We can say, well, we think this means this, and then but we are doing violence to the context. We'll make sure that we're getting the context. There's also blessing to be gleaned from the slower study of Scripture and that we get into the details and we really have a chance to meditate on what is there. So we're doing both. Today, we're going to be checking the larger context. We're going to go through the entire Gospel of John, and you know how this works. I'm going to lay the groundwork for our study in the coming weeks in this 10th chapter, and then next week we will begin again in verse 1 and dive in and glean some of the stuff that is, is, is far beneath the surface as we meditate upon some of the details of John 10. John 10 has what is called the Good Shepherd Discourse. This is the sixth of the seven discourses in John's Gospel, and I'm going to review the other five for you because I know that you're trying to memorize the seven discourses and the seven signs of John's Gospel. Right? You're trying to memorize those seven signs and the seven discourses. So let me give you the other five discourses. Actually, I'll give you all seven of them. There's the new birth discourse in John 3. You must be born again. That's the new birth discourse. There's the living water discourse of John 4 with the woman at the well where Jesus said, if you ask me, I would give you living water and you will never thirst again. There's the divine son discourse of John chapter 5, which was to the Pharisees. And that's where Jesus said uh, that the Father has committed all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. For he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And that's John 5. Jesus lays out the case for his divinity in the divine Son discourse. Then there is the bread of life discourse in John chapter 6. And that was where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, he will never hunger and he will never thirst again. I'll give him eternal life and I'll raise him up at the last day. And that was the security of the believer in John 6. Then in John 8 was the light of the world discourse. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In each one of those discourses, the Lord Jesus reveals something fresh, something new about himself, some new element of his character or his purpose or his work. Then there is now the sixth one, and this is the Good Shepherd Discourse, and there is one more, the seventh one, which is the Upper Room Discourse in chapters 13 through 17. So the new birth, the living water, the divine son, the bread of life, the light of the world, and now the sixth one, the Good Shepherd Discourse. 
This is a, this discourse really, uh, is, is, um, cherished by Christians for a number of reasons. And, and I picked the word cherished specifically. It is something that is dear to our heart. There's, the words of the Good Shepherd Discourse have served to settle in a lot of anxious souls. Uh, the words of John 10 have served to assure a lot of people who are perplexed about their salvation or uncertain about their salvation or who maybe live with a lack of assurance for their whole Christian life. The words of John 10 have served to comfort a lot of Christians who go through difficult times and wonder, where is my Savior in the midst of all of this suffering and the affliction? Does He care? Is He there? So the words of John 10, this discourse is near and dear to the hearts of a lot of Christians for a number of reasons. And and it is dear to our hearts, not because we are called sheep. Catch this. It is dear to our hearts, not because we are called sheep, but because of who is called our shepherd. That's why it's dear to us. So we see in John 10 the characteristics of the good shepherd. That is what brings comfort to us. That is what brings assurance to us. Not just that I'm called a sheep, but that of the one who is called my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. So this Good Shepherd Discourse is cherished by a lot of people. It's near and dear to our hearts. And there are some familiar verses that you're going to notice as we read through it here in just a moment. Uh, for instance, John chapter 10, verse 7. I want to read, look at two very familiar passages. 7, or 10, verse 7. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now that phrase, John 10, verse 10, is that's the type of phrase that you see on the side of uh, refrigerator magnets and, and the calendars and coffee mugs and all of that. That's one of those precious jewels of John 10. Look at the other one in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal, I give to, I give eternal life to them. Sorry about that. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. That passage describes the security of the sheep. So we have the promises of salvation in John 10 and the promises of the security of, of the sheep who belong to Christ in John 10. So there are some familiar words there that we're going to get to see again. The very first question that we get to ask of John 10 is this. What is the setting of this discourse? What is the setting? In other words, when did this take place? To whom was, were these words addressed? Because as you're going to see, answering this question, to whom was Jesus speaking, has more bearing upon the interpretation of this entire passage than it might at first appear. So we first have to ask the question, what is the setting? Who is the audience? To whom is he speaking? Because we want to make sure that we interpret every passage in light of to whom was he speaking, when was he saying this, and what was the purpose of him saying this. And those things bear upon our interpretation of it. So if we started reading in chapter 10, verse 1, we would read verse 1 and 2 and 3, and we're going to do this in just a second. I'm not skipping over this to avoid Scripture. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5 are all the words of Jesus in this discourse. Then we get down to verse 6. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So obviously, this is addressed to they and to them. Obviously. But now you have another question. Who is the they and the them of chapter 10, verse 6, right? Don't we want to know that? We might assume that he's talking about being a shepherd and he's talking to sheep, so we would might assume that this is the disciples. 
But in order to figure out who the they and the them are, we have to look at the context of John 10. So we go back up, verse 5, verse 4, verse 3, verse 2, verse 1, and we don't see Jesus or John specifically saying that Jesus is addressing anyone. So listen, we actually have to go back into chapter 9 to verse 41, where Jesus begins the discourse, and He said to them. There's the them again. Who's the them of chapter 9, verse 41? The them of 9, verse 41 is the Pharisees, of 9 verse 40. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, quote, verse 41 all the way through the end of verse 5 is addressed to whom? To the Pharisees. Now here is one of the most amazing things about the Good Shepherd Discourse. The Good Shepherd Discourse was not even addressed to sheep. It was addressed to the hostile Pharisees who at that very moment wished to kill him. The Good Shepherd discourse was not even addressed to the sheep. Now there were sheep standing there. The man born blind was there. Some of his disciples were there. Maybe all of his disciples were there. There were sheep who heard this, but Jesus is addressing these words, not to the disciples, not to the man born blind, but to the they and the them, which is the Pharisees, the hostile Pharisees, the false shepherds of Israel. Oftentimes we think of the Good Shepherd Discourse, and as we read this, John chapter 10, we picture Jesus out with His twelve disciples, sort of kicking through the tall green grass, right? And we have a, 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 bum, a, br- a brook, bumbling, brumbling brook, whatever it is, sort of off in the background, and you can hear it trickling across the rocks, and you picture this green pasture laid out before Him as He describes the, the pasture that He gives to His sheep, and calling a sheep to himself, and, and you picture sunshine and, and lollipops and, and butterflies floating around, everything's peaceful. That's not it at all. Who is he addressing? He has had the religious leaders, the shepherds of the nation of Israel, say to him, are you saying we're blind? Are you calling us blind too? And here's his answer. Yeah, you are blind. You don't see it at all. And then he gives to them the Good Shepherd Discourse, to our benefit. We benefit from it. But listen, you're going you're to notice as we go through John 10, rightly understanding this discourse requires that we constantly go back to this. He is addressing the false shepherds of Israel. These are words of comfort to us, but incredible judgment to them. As he contrasts himself as the Good Shepherd to them, the false shepherds of the nation of Israel. And we get to see what a good shepherd is, but keep in mind, he's not talking to sheep. He's talking about his sheep, but he's talking about his sheep to false shepherds. Well, that's the setting. That's the audience. Now, what is the occasion? The occasion is on Jesus' meeting with the man who was born blind. You remember what has just happened. What has just happened? The man who has been born, born blind, who has been healed by Jesus, has been excommunicated from the synagogue. So here is a man who is his sheep, who has come now. He has believed upon him. He's confessed that belief. He's worshipped Jesus. Because Jesus has revealed to him, to him that He is the Son of Man, that He is God incarnate. This man has said, I believe, Lord. He has bowed down. He has worshipped Jesus in the presence of these Pharisees. And so this is one of His sheep. And how did the shepherds of Israel treat one of His sheep? They booted Him out of the synagogue. They slandered Him. They reviled Him. They cursed Him as a sinner. And they kicked Him out of the fellowship of the nation of Israel and out of the synagogue and out of the communion with the entire people of, of Israel. And now the true shepherd is saying, this is how a true shepherd treats his sheep. In contrast to what you wicked Pharisees have done to this man, one of mine. Now that's the contrast of John chapter 10. That's the occasion and the setting and the audience. 
There is no break between chapter 9 and chapter 10. There's a break there in your Bible. There's a space, probably a heading, and a new chapter division. But keep in mind, John didn't write in chapters. Chapters and verses weren't added for hundreds of years after John wrote his gospel. They were added simply for our convenience of referencing things in Scripture. But they're not original. They're not inspired. Sometimes they're very helpful. Sometimes they're not very helpful. And in a situation like this, the chapter break tends to make us think in our minds that there is a division of time, a switching of time or location or occasion here. But we have to force ourselves to remember this happens within two weeks of everything in chapter 7. Remember, all of chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and half of chapter 10 all take place within a time period of about two weeks. So you have the Jesus coming for the Feast of Tabernacles and Him crying out in the temple, I am the living water, come to me all ye who thirst, that gospel invitation. In chapter 8, in the argument with the Pharisees and saying, I am the light of the world, and then the, the back and forth with the Pharisees, some people believe, but Jesus pointed out, you're not believers, chapter 8, you're still in bondage to your sin, in bondage to Satan, in bondage to your you will die without me because you do not believe that I am the I am. And they picked up stones to stone him. He went out of the temple, healed the man born blind. And within a week now, he has the man born blind before him. He is healed. The Pharisees have kicked him out. Jesus meets him, reveals his deity. The man worships and the Pharisees are standing there and they are indignant. All of that within just a couple of weeks of time. Seven, eight, nine, and half of ten. Now I say, you say, why half of ten? Because there is a time break in chapter ten, but it's not at ten verse one. It's actually at 10, verse 21. And I just want to point it out to you. Actually, verse 22 is where it begins. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. Now, beginning in verse 22, that would have been a helpful place to put a chapter break. That would have been where chapter 10, if I were king, chapter 10 would start at, at chapter 10, verse 22. Because there is a time break there of about two months. And then what Jesus does is back in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication, the Pharisees come to him again and they confront him. We're going to see this in just a moment. And Jesus has an exchange there, and he goes back to this theme that he had already spoken to them about two months prior. So that's the occasion. Now, there are several themes that are developed in John chapter 10, and this is the beauty of John. As John weaves together the discourses and the miracles, here's how he does it. The discourses are explanations of the miracles. The miracles are illustrations of the discourses. And we've seen this as we've gone through John. He is a master writer. I mean, I thought Luke was good when we went through the book of Acts. John is phenomenal, the way he weaves all of this together, discourse and miracle, and then a discourse and a miracle, and you see that one unfolds into the other, and the other explains the one, and the one explains the other, and he just weaves it back and forth like this. So there are certain themes that come up in John chapter 10 that we have already seen come up earlier in John's gospel. There are several things that are new, and let me give you a couple of the themes that we're going to encounter. There is the theme of true teachers versus false teachers. Because as Jesus explains to them what the true shepherd is and what he has done and what he will do and does for his sheep, he contrasts that with the, the thieves, the robbers, those who gain illegitimate access to the fold, those hirelings who scatter or flee when the flock is in danger. He contrasts himself, the true teacher, the true shepherd, with the false shepherds of the nations of Israel. So we're going to get a description of certain false teachers and what they do, and how they conduct themselves, and what they do to the flock. We're going to see that as we go through. We also see in this passage the sacrifice of the shepherd. That the shepherd gives his life in place of the sheep. So there is the theme of I lay down my life, I give my life for my sheep, my sheep know me, I call them by name, I give my life for them, they come to me. There is this theme of the sacrifice of the shepherd on behalf of his sheep woven throughout here. In John chapter 10, this is one of the reasons I love this passage. In John chapter 10, we get Jesus' teaching about the purpose and the nature and the extent of his death. 
For whom did he die? And what did that death accomplish? Did he merely die to make salvation possible so that you and I then can actualize it? Did he leave the rest up to us? Or in his substitutionary death, did the Lord Jesus actually secure the salvation of all his sheep eternally? Which is it? Jesus is going to answer that question. And it is the answer to that question that actually gives us the assurance of our security as his sheep. So we have the sacrifice of the shepherd, the security of the sheep. A lot of people like to talk about the security of the sheep. They call it eternal security or perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved, whatever term you use to describe it. Some people describe it with a, in a pejorative sense. I happen to believe in the security of the sheep, as we've seen in John chapter 6. We saw it in John chapter 3, John chapter 5, John chapter 6, and John chapter 8. But other than that, it's hardly in John's gospel. But it's all the way through those discourses. And I believe in the security of the sheep. And all of us, well, not all of us, but maybe probably most of us here would say, yeah, I believe that once saved, always saved, or that we persevere as his sheep, that we are secure. But why do you believe that? What's your theological underpinnings? Let me tell you something. Unless you believe that Jesus in his death did something special for his sheep, you have no theological underpinning for your doctrine of eternal security. Your doctrine of eternal security has to rest upon what happened on the cross. That's it. That is why, after all of the discussion about what he did for his sheep, he can say, they are secure. I will lose none of them because of what I have done on their behalf. So we're going to look at the nature of that security and what the theological underpinnings are for our doctrine of the security of the believer. There's also the contrast between true believers and false believers. We've seen this already in John's Gospel. In John chapter 8, we have Jesus teaching about the difference between true believers and false believers. In John chapter 9, we had the example of the true believer as contrasted with the false believers. The false believers picked up stones to stone him when they heard him declare his own deity. The true believer, the man born blind, when he heard Jesus declare his own deity, didn't pick up stones to stone him. He bowed the knee to worship him. And now in John chapter 10, we have Jesus describing again the difference between the true believer and the false believer. What are the marks of a true believer? A true believer hears the voice of his shepherd. A true believer comes to that shepherd. A true believer receives life from that shepherd. A true believer doesn't abandon that shepherd. A true believer is loyal to that shepherd. He doesn't follow after the voice of strangers, false teachers, hirelings. A true believer is marked by certain things. So Jesus describes not only his own character as shepherd of the sheep, but Jesus describes the character of a true believer. How do I know who a tr what a true believer is? Well, the sheep are described in this passage as well. So we're going to see the distinction between true and false believers. And then, of course, there's John 10, verse 30. I and my Father are one. That is an, that is an unequivocal, clear, plain declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. And they picked up stones to stone him because they understood exactly what he was claiming again. So we see the deity of Christ. We see the reaction of the people to his teaching. They tried to stone him in chapter 5. They try and stone him again in chapter 10. They tried to seize him in chapter 7. They try and seize him again in chapter 10. And so we see the reaction of the people. And then we see, of course, Jesus describing and discussing what they should have learned from his miracles. Signs that I did. Signs that I've done in your presence. These should say certain things about me. You ought to be getting the picture, and they don't. And then we also have Jesus, by the way, describing to them the reason for their unbelief. You're going to see that in just a moment. The reason for their unbelief. Why is it that they did not believe? So there are some new things here. There are some old things here. And here's the beauty of John and the way John does this. Even though there are old themes that we have seen in the first nine chapters of John's Gospel, here's the beauty of it. We get to see it in an analogy or a metaphor from an entirely different angle. 
So the, the person of Christ in John's Gospel, actually in all of Scripture, is like a precious jewel that you spend time gazing at from one angle under light. And then you give it just a slight turn and you get a whole new appreciation for the beauty of this gem. That's the way Jesus is. We look at Him, we see Him as the, the, the living water, chapter 4, the divine Son, the bread of life, the, living, the light of the world, and now the good shepherd of the sheep. And then the true vine in chapter 15. And every time John gives us a discourse, we just get another glimpse of the person of Christ from a different angle. Not necessarily any brand new truths, anything really earth-shatteringly new that we haven't seen in John's Gospel, but a whole new way of looking at it, and we gain a deeper appreciation of our Savior. Now, there are a couple of challenges to interpreting John 10. And let me give you a couple of these challenges and then we're going to jump into reading through the entire chapter together. Here are a couple of the challenges. First of all, there's the challenge of the analogy itself. The shepherd and the sheep. And there are, as we go through this, some interpretive challenges that we face. And here's here's the key interpretive issue that we face in John chapter 10. Actually, it's, it's what we face with any analogy or metaphor that we get in Scripture. The key interpretive issue is this. How far do we take the metaphor? Because we have here that Jesus is both the, the door and the one who opens the door. He is the shepherd of the sheep. He is the, uh, so he, he is in one sense somebody hired to care for or given charge of the sheep. And in another sense, he is the one who charges others to care for the sheep. So there's metaphors here and in some ways sort of mixed metaphors. So the question is, how do we use the metaphor or glean from the metaphor without making more of the metaphor than we ought to be making? And this is the challenge, by the way, with every parable. If you've heard some people interpret a parable, they go like this. Now the this refers to this, and the this refers to this, and they draw a parallel out of every detail of the parable. And that's not the point of the parable. The point of a parable is usually to communicate one central truth. And a lot of the parable or the story is this just there to make the story work. It's not intended to be to be drawn or extrapolated out into some parallel that we're supposed to spiritualize. That's not the issue with the parable. It's not the issue with this metaphor as well. There are some things in the metaphor that we are intended to draw spiritual parallels to. There are some things in the metaphor and the details of this that are simply there to make the metaphor work. And we will allow the context to determine what that is. The second challenge we face in John chapter 10 is this. There are familiar verses in John chapter 10 that... I think you may have a misunderstanding, or some of you may have a misunderstanding of what these verses mean, because you have been taught that they mean this your entire life. And then we're going to get into it, and hopefully you're going to realize, oh, they didn't mean that at all. What type of verses am I talking about? On two occasions in this, at least two occasions in this, in this metaphor, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Now some people take that phrase and that word, those words, and they try to draw from that a theology that says that God is communicating, Jesus is constantly whispering messages in the ear of His sheep. And we are supposed to listen to that. Yes, Lord? I get, okay, I think so. I, hold on. Tuning it in, tuning it in. And that, that's how we're supposed to respond to that. But as we get into this metaphor, you're going to realize that when the, sh- when the shepherd says, my sheep hear my voice, he is not speaking about whispering private revelations about who to pray for or where to go or what shirt to wear or what car to buy or what college to attend or what to make for dinner. It's not what John is talking about. It's not what Jesus is talking about. We do hear the shepherd's voice, but this is the question. What is that voice and what is the consequence of hearing that? The consequence of hearing that is salvation. My sheep come to me. That's the metaphor. And you can't draw out of that some theology of God whispering voices in your ear. And as you get into this, we see it in its context. You'll see, when Jesus says, my sheep hear his voice, my voice, he is not talking about privatized revelations. Okay? Now let's jump into the passage itself. 
We will read all the way through this entire chapter. This gives us the opportunity to catch the whole thing, to hear Jesus unfold this. And as we go through this, here's what, I, here's what my intention is. My intention is to allow us to see the characteristics of our shepherd as they are given in the discourse. So I'm going to stop or pause along the way for a brief explanation of some things so you can kind of see how this whole thing is unfolding. And we want to see how is it that Jesus is described in this passage? What is it that we see about our shepherd? Who is he? What has he done? And there are some characteristics. Let's begin in verse 1. Actually, let's go up to verse 35 because that's the context, remember? See, right there, I wanted to start at verse 1, but that's the wrong thing to do. The right thing to do is to go back to the context and catch who is there and what's going on. Verse 35 of chapter 9. Jesus heard that they had put him out, the man born blind, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We're not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, or since you insist that we see, your sin remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. That's the first characteristic of our shepherd, that he is a sincere shepherd. He's a genuine shepherd. He doesn't gain access to the fold through some illegitimate means, not climbing up over a wall or climbing up over a gate. It's his sheepfold that he has access to legitimately. He is the sincere or the true, the right and proper shepherd. Now verse 3, to him, that is to the true shepherd, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep will follow him because they know his voice. That's the second characteristic. He's a summoning shepherd, a sincere shepherd and a summoning shepherd. He calls his sheep and he calls them by name. And they follow after him because his sheep know his voice. They hear him. If you are saved today, it is because at some point in your life, you heard the voice of the shepherd saying, come to me. And you came. And you came in obedience to him because that was you hearing the voice of the shepherd. And you came. Every individual who has come to Christ has heard this call of the shepherd to him and has come. Verse 5. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. He is a securing shepherd, a sincere shepherd, a summoning shepherd, and a securing shepherd. His his sheep are secure, and one of the ways that they are secure is that they don't chase after false shepherds. You ever wonder why churches are filled with people who follow after false teachers and heretics and people who blaspheme the name of God? Why is that the case? That is the case because most of those people are there who are there chasing after false shepherds. The true sheep do not stray after false believers, false teachers, heretics, and blasphemers, false prophets. They don't go after them because the voice of strangers they do not recognize. They run from a stranger and they know and hear the voice of the true shepherd and they go to the true shepherd. So he is a sincere, summoning, and securing shepherd of the sheep. Now look at verse 6. Jesus has said to them, and he has explained to them that they're blind. Verse 6, this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them. They didn't understand what those things were, which he had been saying to them. That's proof that they're what? (laughs) Blind. Again, the same people. They don't get it. You're not saying we're blind too, are you? Jesus essentially says, yes, not only are you blind, but you are the false shepherds. You are the hirelings. 
You're the thief and the robber. You do not have eternal life. You are a stranger. My true sheep don't follow after you, false shepherds, because they hear my voice and they come to me. And those who come to me don't chase after you. And those who chase after you, they don't come to me because they're not my sheep. Yes, you are blind. And what was their response? What do you think he means by this? You got it, right? What do you think he means by this? They're perplexed. They didn't understand it. They didn't catch the figure of speech. So Jesus goes on in verse 7. Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. He's just saying the same thing over again. He's explaining the same thing in a different way, a little bit more thoroughly. Verse eight, uh, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He's a supplying shepherd. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Sincere, summoning, securing, and supplying shepherd. He gives to his sheep life. And listen, the allusions to Psalm 23 are so thick. Can you see them? Right? Leading me beside steel waters, securing me. I am safe in the valley of the shadow of death because the Lord is my shepherd, not a stranger, not a false prophet, not a false shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd and so I am secure and I am provided for and I am there and He calls me and I lead, He leads me and I follow Him. It's, it's, this is an explanation of Psalm 23. The allusions that Jesus is giving to Psalm 23 are, are thick here. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Now verse 11 and following is the sacrificial shepherd. He's a sacrificial shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he's not concerned about the sheep. Who do you think he's describing there? Them. These false shepherds of Israel. These are words of condemnation. This is what they did. How had they just treated the man born blind? They had done everything he is describing here as false shepherds of Israel to one of his sheep. And now he's reproving them. And all of this condemnation that he is giving comes out of the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah and other passages that describe these false shepherds. And we're going to see those in the weeks to come. We're going to look at some of those Old Testament passages. Now verse 14. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. That is the sacrificing shepherd. By the way, in that society, these words sounded as weird as you can possibly imagine. Look, if you're a Jew, I want you to think of what it would be like to hear this as a Jew. If you were a Jew, you were used to this concept. You go out in the field, you raise your sheep, you are the shepherd of your flock, And several times a year, you take one of the lambs and you take it to the temple or the tabernacle and you cut its throat and that sheep dies for you. Jesus is saying not that the sheep die for the shepherd, but now the shepherd dies for the sheep. It's a complete reversal. These people were used to thinking in terms of sheep dying in the place of the shepherd. Jesus says the true shepherd dies in the place of the sheep. That's atonement. That is substitutionary, vicarious, penal, substitutionary atonement that Jesus is describing. One innocent man, completely righteous, dying in the place of and paying the penalty of another guilty man, of a guilty man. That is penal substitutionary atonement. And this whole passage is going to allow us to unfold what this substitutionary atonement is and what all the ramifications of that are. Verse 17, now this is the sovereign shepherd. So we have seen a 
well, I'll start with S and we'll go over them later. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. See, nobody takes it from me, he said. I'm sovereign. He's sovereign over the laying down of his own life. Verse 18, no one has taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Wow, that's amazing. The sincere summoning uh, securing, sacrificing, supplying, sovereign shepherd of the sheep. That is the Lord Jesus. And he's saying to them, he, he knew their hearts. And he is saying to them, I'm going to lay down my sheep, my life for my sheep, but it's on my own terms. Not as a victim, but as a volunteer. I will die in the place of my sheep. Jesus' death, Jesus Christ, was not an accident of history. He wasn't the wrong man at the wrong place at the wrong time. He wasn't somebody who just died to show his sheep how much he loved him. He was a man who volunteered to lay down his life in the stead to pay the sin price for his people, his sheep, so that they can go free on the day of judgment. That's substitution. Look at verse 19. Now he's the slandered shepherd. Verse 19, a division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he is a demon and is insane. That's their favorite one, right? Demon possessed. We've seen it earlier back in chapter 7. They did it in Matthew chapter 12. You do this by the power of Beelzebub. This was one of their favorite slanders for the shepherd of the sheep to call him demon possessed. Now verse 21, or verse 20, many of them were saying he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of a blind, can he? Remember, they're saying this in the presence of the man who was born blind. Here we are in John chapter 10, verse 21, and who's still present? The man born blind in chapter 9. He is there listening to this with the Pharisees. He has heard all of this, and then they say he's demon possessed. And one of them, among the Pharisees, one of them says, Demon-possessed men cannot open blind people's eyes. Here's a man who was blind. He was blind last week and he can see today. These are not the words of a man demon-possessed. And as you read this discourse, that doesn't sound like a man demon-possessed, does it? it? It sounds like a man who believes he is God. It sounds like a man who is God. But it doesn't sound like the ravings of a demon-possessed lunatic. You may have met a few demon-possessed lunatics. They don't talk like that. They don't describe themselves in these terms. Verse 22, at that time, the Feast of Dedication, I remember between verse 21 and 22, a two-month gap. So John is skipping forward in time, but he is continuing the same theme because two months later, Jesus picked up the theme in answer to their question that he had been on two months prior, with these, presumably with these same men. At that time, it was the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to them, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. <laughs> that is absurd. That is absurd. You read through the first nine chapters of the Gospel of John. That is the most absurd question ever put in print. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. How much more plainly could he put it? He has told them that he is the Messiah using every conceivable Old Testament analogy. Every conceivable Old Testament doctrine. He has, he has hit this from, from every way, fulfilling this passage and that passage, demonstrating his omniscience, doing miracles in front of them. They knew this. But they're like children continuing to ask the same questions over and over and over until they get an answer that they want to hear. Your children do that? Yeah, yeah, we know they do. That's what they do. They don't like the answer that they get. They ask it again in another way until they hear what they want to hear. That's what these Jews are doing. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Stop, stop covering this up. You're not covering anything up. He told them plainly. They rejected it. Verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. Wow, that is just a rebuke. That is such a strong rebuke. You do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. They saw the works. They heard His words. They heard His teaching. They saw His life. They knew it. 
They heard it. He told them. He lays it out. I told you. So why then do they not believe? Here's Jesus' explanation of their unbelief. Verse 26. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. That's hard to swallow. If you think that your belief makes you his sheep, that's, that's going to be tough for you to swallow. The reason for their unbelief is because they had not been given to him by the Father. That is the sovereign reason why they remained in their unbelief. The human responsibility reason why they remained in their unbelief is because they love darkness rather than light, and they would not repent, and they would not believe, and they would not embrace the truth, but instead they loved a lie. From the sovereign vantage point, you do not believe because you do not belong to me. That's it. Now from the human side, it is, you do not believe because you will not repent. Those two things go together and you have to get them, you have to get them at least both of them in your mind without compromising either one of them. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. The implication is that had they been his sheep, they would have what? They would have believed. Now look at verse 28, 27. My sheep hear my voice. There's that statement again, but Jesus is not describing private revelation. What is he describing? Belief, salvation, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now that is, that is a boiling down of John chapter 6. All that the Father has given to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. But that one who comes to me and I embrace and embraces me, I will give them eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. And none of those whom the Father has given to me will perish. That is his statement of security. Here you have the same thing in John chapter 10, but it's this. You don't believe because you're not of my sheep. If you were my sheep, you would hear what I'm saying. You would understand it. You would believe. I would give you eternal life and I would secure you. But because the Father has not given you to me, you do not belong to me. That is why you do not believe. Those are hard words, but that is exactly what Jesus is saying. Had they been given to Him by the Father in eternity past for the Son to save, sanctify, and secure, they would have come. And they would have heard, and they would have believed, and He would have given them life, and He would raise them up at the last day. But you do not believe because you do not belong to Me. The Father has not given you to Me. That is the sovereignty of God in salvation. Hard for us to grasp that, but it is true. That does not in any way negate human responsibility. Because Jesus does say to them, you do not believe. They were responsible to believe. Nothing in this passage negates either the sovereignty of God or the responsibility of men to repent and to believe the gospel. Look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They understood exactly what he was saying. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you. But for blasphemy, and because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Now, how did they understand his statement in verse 30? I and the Father are one. They understood him to be claiming to be God. Now Jesus is going to answer them by quoting the Old Testament, and he's going to focus in on one particular passage, one particular word, and he's going to emphasize that the Scripture cannot be broken. He's going to argue from the Old Testament, and at first blush, this is how Jehovah's Witnesses take this, it's going to sound like Jesus is saying, no, 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 you didn't understand me. I'm not claiming to be God. I'm just claiming to be like Old Testament men who were called gods. But that's not what Jesus is doing. Let's read it. Verse 34. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? 
If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Here's Jesus' argument. It is an argument from the lesser to the greater. And he's saying this, there are men in the Old Testament whom the Scripture calls gods. Not ascribing deity to them, but because they stood in the place of God to give the revelation of God or to judge as judges in behalf of God and His law. And so they called them gods after a sense. Not that they thought they were deity. And so Jesus is saying, if the Scripture says that those men are called gods, and Scripture can't be broken, and these are just mere men, then why do you say of me, the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, who has done these miracles and made these claims, why do you say that I'm blaspheming for calling myself the Son of God? If those men can be called gods, in a sense, as a descriptive adjective of their function, how is it that I, who actually am God, am blaspheming when I call myself the Son of God? That is an argument that they could not overturn, and it was brilliant. And it was based upon Old Testament Scripture. Verse 40, or verse 39, Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. They wanted to grab him. Did they not remember two months earlier when he told them what? I, you don't take my life from me. I lay it down at my own time, in my own way, by my own will, and I'll take it up again. They couldn't grasp him. They couldn't stone him. They couldn't seize him. They couldn't kill him before his time because Jesus didn't die as a victim. Jesus died as a volunteer. And he laid down his own life on his own timetable and by his own means. Verse 40, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. And that's true belief. That's true belief. Well, that's John chapter 10. The last few verses there set up John chapter 11, which is the resurrection of Lazarus, which is the seventh sign In John's Gospel, you see how he's doing this? Sign and discourse and sign and discourse, telling us who Jesus is, giving us a glimpse of the Savior. It is my prayer that as we go through John chapter 10, that a couple of things will happen. Number one, that you will fall more deeply in love with Christ as the shepherd of your soul. And you will appreciate Him more, what He has done for you and what He promises to do for you. And second, that if there's somebody here who is unsure of their salvation and you lack assurance, that you will find the rest for your souls that is intended in John 10. In understanding the shepherd and what he has done, I think it is there that we find true assurance and rest for our souls in the salvation that we've been given in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for the time that we can have to overview this passage. And again, we see the Son, your Son, the deity, the, the Son of God in flesh who was so gloriously kind and gracious to give us these words and to to volunteer to come here and take upon Himself human flesh and to die as a substitute on behalf of His sheep, those whom You gave to Him. So we are so grateful, God, for what we have seen of Christ and what He has promised for us and to us. And we are thankful, those of us who are Your sheep, that we have been called by Your grace and made sheep by Your choice and not our own and by Your doing. It's all for Your glory. And we thank You. We thank You for such a great salvation. We thank You for a Savior who has saved us and who continues to sanctify us and who by His death on the cross in our place has secured us for all eternity. May we rest in that and rest in Him, we ask in His name. Amen.